It was really encouraging to sing about the greatness of God this morning, wasn't it? And I loved how you guys were singing really loud. Um, I, I was thinking that, you know, I'm, I'm so thankful to be in this church that sings about a great God, that's concerned about singing about God and not singing about me, right? There's a lot of churches this morning that are going to use, for lack of a better phraseology, you know, Jesus is my boyfriend, right? Just about how I feel about God, how I gush about God. But to sing these songs about how great God is, that's inspirational, right? It's like, it just fuels in us a great me, a great love of God, wanting to love God and to worship Him and to open His Word and to learn from Him. So let's do that now. If you'll open your Bible, please, to Exodus chapter 39. Exodus chapter 39. Uh, again, we're going to be looking at a lot of passages through the last several chapters of Exodus, so I would encourage you to have a Bible open. Um, if you didn't bring one with you, or don't have one on your phone or your iPad, if you brought that with you today, um, use one of the few Bibles. I think it's really good to have, again, a text, copy of God's Word in front of you. And you can turn directly to page uh, 79. We'll be reading there in just a moment. How do you measure true devotion? How do you measure... True devotion. How do you measure devotion to your spouse or to your kids? How do you measure devotion to your work or to your hobbies, your sports, your crafts, your uh, service organizations, community organizations? How do you measure devotion to uh, your community? How do you measure devotion to your friends? How do you measure devotion to God? Because God has redeemed us to be His people, we must understand that we must devote ourselves to Him. But how do we do that? How do we devote ourselves to God? What does that kind of, of true devotion, of genuine devotion look like? Well, as we come to the end of the book of Exodus, we are going to encounter this issue of devotion, devotion to God, and how God's people are to show devotion to Him. How, how do they do that? How do God's people show devotion to God? It's a, it's a logical question. God has shown His devotion to us. He has done so many things for us. He has made us to be His people. Now, how do we show devotion to Him? It's a necessary question. If we're living in relationship with Him, how do we show devotion to God? Now, as we come to the end of the book of Exodus today, we have seen throughout our study of this book, God has been acting graciously and powerfully and supernaturally for His people. He's rescued them from slavery. He's parted the Red Sea. He's provided for all their needs in the wilderness. He made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. He gave them His law so that they would know how to live in this relationship. He gave them instructions for building the tabernacle so that He could dwell with them. He forgave them of their idolatry when they built and worshipped the golden calf. And He renewed His covenant with them after they had broken it by their disobedience. So the main character in this book is not Moses or Aaron or Pharaoh or even Israel. It's God. God is the main character. He is the main actor. God has taken the initiative. God has pushed the narrative forward. God has, has taken responsibility for everything that has happened in this book. It's about God. God doing His 
cosmic plan. He he is enacting His cosmic purposes, His redemptive purposes for His people. Israel is the recipient of what God has done. So, with this in mind then, what is Israel's response? How should she respond to what God has done for her? And so far, her response to God has not been great. This has not been stellar, right? She's feared and whined and grumbled and complained. She's even longed to return to Egypt. She has pined to return to a life of slavery. She has pursued idols. But now here at the end of the book of Exodus, she exhibits the kind of response that God requires. The kind of response that is expected from a people who have come to know God and to experience His abundant blessings. So here at the end of the book of Exodus, through all of its twists and turns and its ups and downs, ups and downs, we see what true devotion to God looks like. And it's a great place to end the book as the people of Israel look forward to the promise of, of, of their inheritance, the promise of God's promised land, a life lived in relationship with Him for the rest of their days. They look forward to the blessing of covenant relationship. They look forward to the fulfillment of how they must live in this relationship, how they must feel and act and live in response to the grace of God. So we want to consider today what this kind of devotion looks like. I call it unadulterated devotion. Pure devotion, genuine devotion, wholehearted devotion to God. What does that devotion look like? Let's look at Exodus chapter 39. I want to start in verse 32 and read to the end of the chapter and then pick up a few more verses in chapter 40. So we'll start in Exodus 39, verse 32. Thus all the work of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases, the covering of tanned ram skins and goat skins and the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table with all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold and its lamps with the lamp set and all its utensils and oil and the oil for the light, the golden altar, the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar and its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stands, the hangings of the court, its pillars and bases, and the screen for the gates of the court, its cords and its pegs, and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle for the tent of meeting, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. And now in chapter 40, let's start with verse 17, as they begin to assemble the tabernacle. In the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. 
he put the tent, table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting, opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil, and burnt, offer, and burnt fragrant incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put, the plate, he put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Now, I want to look here at this passage today, chapters 35 through 40, and consider three ways, at least three ways, that we can show devotion to God. And the first, that we've read right here in chapters 39 and 40, the first way we can show our devotion to God is by our obedience. We show devotion to God by our obedience to him. Now, when we think of devotion, we're usually thinking in terms of, of two people who are equals, right? A husband and a wife, uh, friends, teammates. And so that, that devotion is, is parallel. It's a, it's a devotion shown among equals. But the relationship between God and Israel or between God and the church is not a relationship of equals, right? Instead of kind of putting them side by side, we need to put them top and bottom. Where God is supreme, he is exalted he is preeminent and we are of course less than he is he he is creator and we are created he is holy and we are unholy he is perfect in all his ways and we are sinful human beings so we need the right perspective on this kind of relationship on this kind of devotion we need to remember that we are to humble ourselves before him as his creation that we are recipients of his grace god is primary and so when we express our devotion to God, we need to use the word obedience. Because again, He is greater than we are. We express our devotion to Him by our total and unyielding obedience. God is not our good buddy. He is the sovereign Lord. And we are His people. In Exodus chapter, chapters 35 through 40, Israel showed faithful obedience to God by obeying the detailed instructions that he gave them for building the tabernacle. You might remember a few weeks ago, we looked at Exodus chapters 25 through 31, where God gave those commands for the construction of the tabernacle. Now here, Israel is set to putting those, to, to building the tabernacle. They are set here to, to follow those instructions, and they showed their devotion to God by faithfully obeying the, the instructions that he gave. Now, flip back over to chapter 27 for a moment, to Exodus 27. And I just want to remind us of the kind of detail that God is requiring. This is the, the case of the, um, of the bronze altar. The specificity, the, the detail, the precise instructions that he gives here. Th there is no room for guessing as to what God wants. He is very clear. Let's just remind ourselves of this. Exodus 27, beginning in verse 1. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad, the altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits, and you shall make horns for it on the four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. 
You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards as it has been shown you on the mountain, so it shall be made. Do you see the specificity there? God makes certain requirements in terms of the measurements, right? So many, so many cubits long, so many cubits broad, so many cubits tall. He makes requirements there in terms of the, of the materials, the acacia wood and overlaying with bronze. He makes the requirements there in terms of the procedures, how they are to put it together and the, the poles that need to be put on it so it can be transported properly. So God here is giving the people a verbal blueprint, not just for the bronze altar, but throughout these chapters for the everything in the tabernacle, everything that's required for the tabernacle. Israel had no need to guess what God wanted. In fact, in these chapters, 25 through 31, five times God says that they are to make the tabernacle or make the things of the tabernacle exactly according to plan. He emphasizes there the need for them to be very detailed and very precise in how they go about building the tabernacle, to follow his directions exactly. And so when we come back to chapter 35 to, to 40, in fact, look, look at chapter 36 for a minute, 36 verse 1. As they're getting ready to build the thing, to do, to follow the instructions, God reminds them again that they are to do everything in accordance with his commands. So chapter 36 verse 1, Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary, shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. So God is, is emphasizing, re-emphasizing, intensifying that point. I've given you the precise details. Follow those instructions precisely. Now, we have the interlude after chapter 31. is chapter 32, right? 32, 33, 34. The people there construct the golden calf and they worship the golden calf. They show their a lack of obedience, right? They show grave disobedience. So unlike their faithlessness in those chapters, when we come back to chapter 35 and they set themselves to build the tabernacle, Israel shows remarkable faith. They construct the tabernacle according to God's detailed instructions. So in the construction narrative, in chapters 35 through 40, in fact, in particular, chapters 38 through 40, we see that Moses and the people of Israel build the tabernacle exactly as the Lord had said. They construct it, they assembled it, they arrange it together, and 17 times in those last three chapters, most of those following in chapter 40, 17 times it is reported that Israel did the work just as the Lord commanded. So again, look at chapter 39, just as a reminder. Chapter 39, verse 42. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. In fact, you might have heard that as we were reading chapter 40, the kind of the, the passage I read, the cadence. As the Lord commanded Moses. It's like a repetition. It's like a, it's like a poem. It's like a hymn giving you that, that emphasis. The people here are obeying God just as God commanded. And just again to see an example, look at chapter 38. And Doug, I think, 
if you'll go back to verse 1 on that, Exodus 21.7, I'm going to read chapter 38 out loud. You follow the words on the screen, which are chapter 37 or chapter 27. We read a moment ago what God's instructions were. I'm going to read what they did. Okay, and I want you to follow along up there while I'm reading here, and I want you to see the similarity. Okay, this is you're reading chapter 27, verses one through eight. Can you go back to verse one, Doug? Awesome. And I'm going to read chapter 38. He made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length, and five cubits its breadth. It was square, and three cubits was its height. And do your best to follow along with me. It's not going to be exact word for word, but do your best to follow along. Um, he made horns for it on its four corners. Its horns were of one piece with it, and he overlaid it with bronze. And he made all the utensils of the altar, the pots, the shovels, the basins, the forks, and the fire pans. He made all its utensils of bronze, and he made for the altar a grating, a network of bronze under its ledge, extending halfway down. He cast four rings on the four corners of the bronze, of the bronze grating as holders for the poles. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. And he put the poles through the rings on the sides of the altar to carry it with, to with, with them. He made it hollow with boards. Now, there's some stylistic differences there. There's some rearrangement of words and clauses. But for the most part, did you detect the, the only major change in those passages? The only major change is the verb tense. In chapter 27, it is, he uses the future tense. You shall make. And in chapter 38, when they actually did it, he uses the verb made, past tense. Otherwise, the verbiage is about the same. Again, give some, some, some differences there due to the style, but by and large, it's almost word for word. The difference is that they did exactly what God told them to do. Future tense became past tense. So Israel here obeyed God's instructions faithfully, and their obedience reflected their devotion for God. At this point in the narrative, at this point in the Old Testament, which is one of the highest points of the Old Testament, I think, Israel gladly placed itself in submission to God. They obeyed Him precisely according to what He commanded. Because of her faithfulness, the tabernacle then perfectly reflected both to Israel and to all future generations of God's people what God ordained to communicate through the tabernacle. This is what the writer of Hebrews said. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. They serve a copy and shadow Of the heavenly things. He's speaking there of the temple and of the priestly service. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. There is a reason why God gave them such specificity and there was a reason why Israel had to obey it precisely. So Israel's absolute, unconditional obedience to God's command demonstrated outwardly their devotion to God. I think we can see a parallel here for our lives because we too express our devotion to God in terms of our obedience to Him and to His Word. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If anyone loves me, if anyone's devoted to me, he will do what? He will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. He will tabernacle with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word. So you see the link there? Our love for God is in part, our devotion to God is in part 
expressed in our obedience to him. John will write in 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, of God, our love for God. We know that we love God. How? That we keep his commandments. So one way we measure our devotion to God is by our obedience. And our obedience should be easy to evaluate. We should be able to look at our lives and compare our lives by the word of God and see if we indeed measure up. Now, I would say this. I think we can all admit that we can all obey better, right? None of us is perfect. None of us obeys perfectly. That's part of us still wrestling with sin and temptation in this world. It's still part of working out our salvation in Christ as He has given to us the salvation. He has sanctified us. He is also in the process of sanctifying us. So we can be better. We can always do better. But does, does obedience mark our life? Do we see obedience as a regular pattern of our lives? Do we see growth? Do we see progress? Do we see improvement? Do we see more and more faithfulness to God in our lives as we walk with Him? And if we do, praise God. That's not a place to kind of sit in your laurels and say, I've arrived, right? We are to keep going. We can always obey better. We are to keep immersing ourselves in the Word of God. There is no, there is no middle ground. There is always moving forward or falling back. So we need to keep pressing ahead. Keep pushing in to the Word of God. Keep pushing in to obeying God, obeying His Word. Press into the Word so that we will know what God requires of us. Press into the Word so that we will know how to live before Him. Keep reading and hearing and studying the Word. Ask for the Spirit's help so that you might obey Him faithfully. In fact, one of the marks of a Spirit-filled life is our obedience to God. And if, I would say too, as you're examining yourself and you don't see that obedience, that pattern of obedience in your life, then the Scripture would say we should check our heart, Right? Because we act on the basis of our heart. That's why it's a bad idea to follow your heart. It will always lead you astray. We act on the basis of our heart. So if we don't see obedience, it indicates to us that our hearts have not been changed. It means we have not been truly born again because one of the hallmarks of the new birth, one of the hallmarks of the new covenant is the new birth. A new heart. A heart that is alive. A heart on which God's Word is written in our hearts so that we are motivated internally to obey God. So if that is lacking, then let's talk. Examine yourselves. Press into the Gospel. See if your heart is truly born again. So, this kind of devotion, this unadulterated devotion to God requires obedience, absolute unconditional obedience. It should always be our inclination, always be our desire, always be our drive to obey God. The second way that we can show devotion to God is by our generosity. We show our devotion to God by our generosity to Him from a willing heart. Now, uh, three of my kids are in here. Okay. I probably shouldn't admit this with them in the room. At least other ones are not here. So don't let this get back to the rest of my family. But they know it's already true. I have a real hard time saying no to my family. I have a real hard time telling my wife no and telling my kids no. Right? Lindsay can call me up on Friday and says, Dad, I don't have any lunch and I'm about ready to pass out. And you know what my first inclination is to do? Get up and go get her some lunch. That's just, you know... I don't look at my schedule, my clock. I can't do that. I mean, there are times where it's inconvenient. 
But why do I do that? Because I, I love her, and I love my kids, I love my wife. They know how to twist that and turn that, yes. But I'm happy when I'm able to say yes and to give. Why? Because I love them. I'm devoted to them. I want to be generous to them. My intention is never to spoil them. Because I love them, generosity kind of just flows out of me toward them. And generosity is one of the ways that we show our devotion to God. It should flow out of us. Our love for God should be so great that we should just be naturally generous, right? We want to give of what we have to him and for him. And not merely, again, generosity, but a generosity that abounds and overflows freely from a heart that is inclined toward him. Israel's generosity, again, with regard to the tabernacle here, signified its devotion to God. Turn back to chapter uh, 35, Exodus 35, and let's look at verses 20 to 29. And we see here a beautiful picture of Israel's generosity. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets and all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. Which is interesting, because what had they just done? What had they just given gold to, right? The golden calf. Showed their devotion to the golden calf. Verse 23, And every one who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram's skins or goat skins brought them, Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair, and the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and spices, and oil for the light, and for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. So what's Israel doing here? They're giving abundantly to the construction of the tabernacle. This is God's dwelling place. This is where he's going to live. This is where he was going to be among his people. This is where they would meet him in worship. Why would they not want to be generous in this way? I think we can see Israel's generosity. We can measure Israel's generosity in three ways. We can measure their generosity first in terms of what they gave, right? They gave. And they gave. We can see how they gave in a couple different ways. They gave first in terms of quantity. They gave abundantly. They gave in great abundance. They kept giving. They, they, they just gave their stuff. They, kept, they, they just gave. They gave more than was necessary. In terms of quality, they gave their best material possessions. They gave precious metals like gold and silver. Precious gemstones like onyx. Jewelry like brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets. They gave bronze mirrors, high-quality, finely polished bronze that they gave then for the altar. 
They gave dyed threads and fabrics for the curtains, veils, and coverings. They gave expensive spices and oils for the anointing oils and incense. So they gave the best of what they had, right? And I kind of joke around this sometimes. We don't have this here at our church, but other churches I've been a part of. You know, it's like when people want to make a contribution to the Lord, like when they want to bring stuff to the nursery, it's all the broken toys, right? Or when they want to bring, you know, some, some food items like to give away to the homeless ministry or whatever, it's all the cans that are about to expire, right? It's like the stuff that's like not valuable to me. But these people gave the very best of what they had. In terms of their human resources, they offered their skills and abilities. The women spun the threads and wove the linens. Perfumers mixed the oils and the incense. Engravers, stonecutters, embroiderers, weavers, designers, they all gave sacrificially of their time and skill to do the work of the tabernacle, of the the construction for the tabernacle. So Israel gave generously just in terms of what they had. We can also measure their generosity in terms of the condition of their hearts. We see that here that God commanded the building of the tabernacle according to certain specifications. He, again, last point, demanded obedience. Precision, accuracy, faithfulness. But the people did not merely make their contributions and work on the tabernacle because they were commanded to do so, though they were. They gave because their hearts were soft and tender and pliable toward God. They obeyed, but they happily obeyed what God commanded. Did you notice some of the language we just read in this part of chapter 35? The, the language here that characterizes their, their inner disposition, that characterizes the condition of their heart, right? Whoever is of a generous heart, everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit moved him, all who were of a willing heart, all the women whose hearts stirred them, all the people of Israel whose hearts moved them, everyone whose heart stirred him, they kept bringing him Free will offerings, offerings given by their desire to give, their free will to give. So we see in this part of Exodus, just in this section we just read, those ten verses, that ten times in these two, in chapters 35 and 36, the text emphasizes there the internal motivation to give. They're giving of a willing heart. They desire to give. We can also measure their generosity in terms of their frequency of giving. The Israelites not only gave, but they gave abundantly. They kept giving. They gave more and more. And when they had given, they gave even more. There's this this ongoing giving. Even when the needs had already been satisfied, they kept giving. In fact, Bezalel and Aholiab and the other craftsmen came to Moses and reported that they had all the resources that they need to get the job done. And we see that report in chapter 36, verse 2. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to do the work, and they received from Moses all the contributions the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning. Can you imagine that? You know, it wasn't this I gave yesterday. It was, I got more more to give. I need to give you more today. Every, Every morning they woke up and wanted to give something new to the tabernacle construction. Uh, verse 4, so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses, command, so Moses gave the command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, 
Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was was sufficient to do the work and more. So Moses here commands the people to stop bringing the supplies and resources to do the work in the tabernacle. Now, this just does not compute to me, right? I've been in church ministry for 25 years and I have never had this happen, right? It's like an alternate universe. Could you imagine if the elders stood before you this morning and said, church, you are just being so generous. You're going, you've gone above and beyond in your giving. Each week you're giving sacrificially, you're giving the best of what you have, and we've got just bank accounts full of money, and we have nothing to spend it on. Please stop giving. Right? I can't, that, doesn't, that doesn't register with me at all. Because usually every congregational meeting in every church I've ever been in is, you know, things are kind of tight. Please don't forget about the tithe. You know, keep giving, be faithful. You know, and I'm, I'm looking at the spreadsheets, you know, month to month. Are we going to make payroll this month? You know, are we going to be able to, to pay that building loan? You know, now thank, thank the Lord the last several months in this church have been great. I'm not telling you to stop giving. Please continue to give, right? But can you, can you see the generosity here? So much. They were giving so much that Moses says, stop. Why were they giving? They were so generous. Their generosity, again, is remarkable. We just can't fathom it. Their generous giving in unbridled, overflowing abundance was a sign of what? It was a sign of their devotion to God. And I hope that we can see a parallel here, too. That we, too, can show our devotion to God by our generosity from a willing heart. Now, why are we or why should we be generous? Well, because... God has been extremely generous to us. Certainly we can think about the things we have in life, the blessings, this creation, wonderful world we live in, the, the material blessings that we have. I mean, we, you may struggle month to month, but we live in the richest nation in the world. If you don't believe that, go to a third world country. And we're extraordinarily wealthy. And God has been exceedingly kind to every one of us. But even more than that, He has been generous to us through the provision of His Son. Right? You know what John 3.16 says, right? For God so loved the world that He did what? He gave. And what did He give? His only Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God gave the best He had. He gave His Son to us. Not only that we might be saved from His wrath, that's blessing enough, but to draw us into a relationship with Him, a new covenant relationship with Him. We see the, the extent of His generosity even more in the fact that not only did He condescend Himself, He didn't just come into this world, He didn't just take on human flesh, but He went to the cross. He laid down His life. He was crucified for our sins so that we could be made right with God. And because of Christ's sacrifice then, God abundantly blesses us by giving to us all that He has promised His Son. Everything that belongs to Christ belongs to us. What great generosity there is from God in that. And so if you're not a Christian, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I would just challenge you, encourage you to consider God's extreme generosity to you. It is through Christ that our sins are forgiven 
and that we are given a new and abundant life, a life lived in relationship with God. That is God's generosity to you. And you can avail yourself. You can receive His generous gift by turning from your sins and trusting in Christ. Now, for the Christian, God's generosity in the Gospel is what we have experienced. This is our testimony. We have experienced God's generosity. And it is our overwhelming gratitude to God that leads us to be generous to Him. And is in part indicated by our generosity. So how generous are we with our possessions, with our time, with our talents, our skills, our abilities? How can we show devotion to God by our generosity to him and to his kingdom? And again, this shouldn't take a lot of rocket science, right? Just evaluate your generosity with your bank account, your bank statement, or with your calendar. How are you using what's been given to you to give back to God? Because we, we will give ourselves to the things that we value, right? We will give our money, we will give our time, we will give our skills and our abilities to the things that we truly hold dear. Jesus told us in Matthew 6.21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's a convicting verse. So where is our heart? Do we give out of compulsion? Do we give the minimum that God requires? Or do, do our hearts, are they moved? Are they stirred? Are they willing so that we give with extreme generosity? So we show our devotion to God by our obedience and our generosity. Finally, we show our devotion to God by our fellowship. We show our devotion to God by our abiding fellowship with Him. And one way I show my devotion to my wife is to spend time with her. Krista loves it when I spend time with her. And I recognize that when I'm spending time with her, I'm showing her my devotion. And my devotion grows for her because I am spending time with her and she with me. We enjoy each other's company. We enjoy spending time together. We make it a priority. And so as we are spending time together, as we're devoting ourselves to one another, it's really hard for us not to grow closer together. It's really hard for us not to devote ourselves to each other even more and to press more, in, more deeply into that relationship that we have together. And we see kind of that happening here in these last few chapters of Exodus, particularly in chapter 40. Remember that God has commanded Israel to build a tabernacle for what purpose? To, to dwell with them, to fellowship with them. God is doing what? He is drawing near to them. He, again, has appeared to them in a cloud and in fire, up in smoke, on Mount Sinai. But in the tabernacle, He is drawing near. He is expressing to them His covenant love. And Israel's response to that covenant love is to abide in deeper fellowship with God. And in fact, this deeper fellowship shows their growing devotion for God. And again, remember how we got here, right? God called Israel to be his covenant people, and Israel responded to that call in covenant faith. But Israel broke faith. She constructed and she worshipped a golden calf. She bowed down before it. And as a result, she deserved God's hot wrath for her sin. She violated the covenant. She disobeyed the covenant. But what did God do? God showed great kindness. He forgave their sins and He renewed His covenant with them. So with this new display of God's kindness, Israel responds again in faith. Good faith. True faith. Deep faith. 
She seems here to embrace the opportunity to live in renewed and deep fellowship with God. God's devotion to Israel means that they can be assured that God will abide with them, that they can live in abiding, thriving fellowship with God because God draws near. They can trust that God will dwell with them. If they will devote themselves to Him, then they too will show this kind of fellowship to God. And the text dramatically illustrates this kind of fellowship by describing how God moves into the tabernacle. Look at chapter 40, the last couple of verses. Verse 34. Then the cloud, that's the cloud that illustrates, that portrays the the presence of God. God had traveled with Israel through the wilderness and at Mount Sinai in the presence of the cloud. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Lord has moved into the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until, until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of the house of Israel throughout all their journey. So God descends into the tabernacle in the, in the form of the cloud here. He inhabits the tabernacle. He's dwelling there. Whenever the cloud gets up and moves, and Israel packs up the tabernacle and moves with the cloud. And when the cloud settles down, they unpack the tabernacle, set it all up, and God resides in the tabernacle once again. And they would do this all the way until they reached the promised land. As God moved, the people moved. When God stayed, the people stayed. They were following God to abide with God. And again, this is in concrete. I don't think we understand the significance of this because of what God said in Exodus 33. Remember, after they, they built the golden calf and Moses came down and destroyed it, God tells Moses in Exodus 33, look, you guys go on ahead. You guys, have, you guys are a rebellious people, a stiff-necked people. I've forgiven you of this sin. You guys go on. You can inherit the promises. I will fulfill them. through The promises I gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you go on to the promised land, but I'm going to stay right here. And what does Moses say? No. What is the point of that? We can go into the promised land. We can travel through the wilderness. We can experience all the blessings that are there. But if you're not with us, what, is, what point is it for? See, the, the, the promise of the promised land was not the milk and honey. It was life with God. If God wasn't there, it wasn't going to be a, play, a good place to dwell. That's what, their, that's what the covenant was all about, dwelling with God. That was the promise that God would be their God and they would be His people. They would live together in unhindered fellowship with God. They would enjoy that fellowship, a fellowship that no other nation on earth at that time would know is exclusive for them. Because they were devoted to God, they obeyed Him, they followed Him, they wanted to reside with Him, they, they dwelt with Him. Now God has de- devoted Himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He has bound Himself to us eternally. Because Christ has incorporated us together as what? His body. We are in Christ. We trust this morning that God's presence is here. Because we are the people of God and He dwells among us. On earth, we are now the tabernacle of God. We are the body of Christ. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This place is the place where God dwells. Not because of this beautiful building that we meet in every week. God's presence isn't here Monday through Saturday when we're not here. 
When we gather here on Sunday, it's here because you're here. Because the body of Christ is here. God dwells among His people. And when this life is over, in eternity, He will be our tabernacle. He will be our dwelling place. He will continue to abide with us and we will abide with Him for all eternity. The tabernacle was meant to be a shadow of future reality. God and His redeemed people dwelling together in unhindered living fellowship. And we taste the beginnings of that fellowship right now when we gather together as the body of Christ, as the presence of God meets us and dwells with us and inhabits us in power and life and glory, all while we fellowship with Him. And we are going to continue to do that. We continue to abide in this fellowship until that day, the day that we long for, the day that is coming, when what is partial will become fulfilled, when what is tasted will be experienced in its fullest reality. We show our devotion to God by fellowshipping with Him. God has eternally devoted Himself to us in Christ through His death and resurrection. God gave His one and only Son. He gave His beloved Son His most treasured possession, Jesus Christ, to die for the penalty of our sins so that we could be reconciled to Him and enter into a new relationship with Him. Such devotion to us from God then calls us, calls to us for an unadulterated devotion to Him in return. The question is, do we have that kind of devotion? Is this kind of devotion reflected in our obedience? in our generosity, and in our abiding fellowship with Him. My prayer is that it would be so. Because God is worthy of such devotion. Let's pray. Lord, we've sung this morning about how great You are. How great is our God. How holy is our God. How wonderful is our God. And to realize, Lord, that we are we are as nothing in your sight. We, are, we must be so humble before you, Lord. You are so exalted. And yet that you would look down upon us. That you would esteem us. You would create us. You would redeem us. So that we might dwell with you forever. It is a humbling thought. God, would you soften our hearts? Would you make our hearts tender? Would you make them pliable so that we are inclined, Lord? to obey you and to be generous with you and to dwell with you, Lord. Help us to press in to these things. Help us, Lord, to be devoted to you and to show our devotion in an outward way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.